Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, hundreds of people rallied at Western University over the weekend to protest the school's three-dose vaccine mandate. We talk about all of that with a fantastic panel. That's coming straight ahead. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're listening to Canada's most irreverent talk show, or you're watching it. We don't discriminate against whichever medium through which you access this program. We welcome you all the same. We had on the weekend a rally at Western University in my old stomping ground, London, Ontario, and the rally was calling for Western to put an end to its vaccine mandate for students, staff, and visitors. Western has required everyone who wants to step foot on campus to be boosted, and this is something that flies in the face of science, of reason, of individual choice. It's been condemned by lawyers, by doctors, by professors, by students, and Western is so far standing alone. The University of Toronto has a booster requirement for students in residence, which is still wrong, but Western is so far the only university in Canada to put a sweeping mandate on its entire campus community. And not everyone, I mean, we'll talk about some of the weird sort of eccentricities of the policy, but generally speaking, the policy is such that by October 1st, every student or faculty member has to be triple vaccinated for now. For now, it was a two-dose mandate last year. Now it's a three-dose mandate. So no surprise if it ends up becoming a four, a five, a six-dose mandate, which is why a lot of people who went along with it the first time around are saying now enough is enough. And that was the message on the banner that the student protesters were holding up on Saturday. This isn't just about Western. This is about mandates in general and the way that we still have people imposing on us this 2020 mindset in a 2022 world. I want to talk about this with a fantastic panel that we have assembled, Dr. Martha Fulford, who is an infectious diseases specialist in Hamilton. We have Bruce Party, who is a Queen's University law professor and the executive director of Rights Probe. We have Professor Julie Panessi, who is formerly of Huron University College. Now she's the ethics scholar at the Democracy Fund. And Kendra Hancock, who we had on the show last week, the student activist who founded Students for Agency and organized that fantastic demonstration on the weekend. All of you, it is great to have you aboard the program today. Let me start with you on on this, Kendra, because you started this thing really a week ago, less than a week ago, because that was all the notice you've had from Western that this mandate was in effect and was going to be affecting you and your uh, fellow students moving forward. Uh, Just to confirm, has there been any response from Western at all, not in the context of you doing this protest, but about the mandate? No, um, I believe they might have clarified one thing about the donor issue, um, but no, in terms of the, the policy itself, they have not communicated anything to the student body since then. What was your perspective of the showing that you had from the community and, and I'd say in many respects the country on Saturday? It was great. Um, it was it was a bit overwhelming. We The support has been fantastic. We couldn't have asked for a better day on Saturday. We spoke to parents and alumni and students and um, to have everybody there together was was nothing short of incredible. Let me turn to you, Dr. Fulford, because you, you spoke and I thought you were absolutely spot on on Saturday about the first principle of medicine. If someone knows nothing else about medicine and about the Hippocratic Oath, they know first do no harm. And 
what I thought you articulated quite well is that the idea of mandates are really coming from this perspective that medicine is supposed to be one size fits all, which is not the case. And you had said on the weekend has never been the case. This is true. And we can talk about any medical intervention, but I mean, obviously at the moment it's the topic of vaccines, but you know, we think of any vaccine before we even would, would think about um, talking specifically about COVID, that vaccines, we always have to have a clear understanding of what a vaccine does, what it doesn't do and who it benefits. And it's actually very uncommon to have a one size fits all recommendation even for, for vaccines. And so we always have a conversation about who is most at risk, who is most likely to benefit from, from the vaccination. And of course, these are the possible side effects. So then when we come to the COVID vaccine for me, it's very clear that some people, and, it, and we have very good understanding now who's at very high risk for COVID. If that person gets COVID, and particularly at the beginning when, when we didn't have a lot of population immunity, there was a very high risk that person would do very poorly in hospital. And that's mostly advanced age, certain medical conditions, uh, and particularly people say who are profoundly uh, immunocompromised. And we also noted that obesity was, was a significant risk factor for poor outcome. People with those conditions were going to almost certainly do better if they, if they chose to be vaccinated. But the converse is also true that a young 18 year old, that person's risk of a poor outcome from COVID was, was essentially zero. Um, and so that the benefit there is a lot less clear, but then there's a risk. And we've known about the risk for well over a year. Just one in particular is, is the risk of heart inflammation or myocarditis. And so if I have a conversation with a patient, I always think uh, medical ethics should be non-negotiable, quite frankly, is what is the benefit to you with your particular history and medical conditions? This is where if you choose to be vaccinated, I think it will do a really, you know, you'll do better. These are some of the side effects we've noticed, but, but for you, I think that the benefit still weighs any potential risk. But that conversation will be very, very different in a fit young teenager or even a young adult. And then that person, I'm gonna say, you know, COVID, sure, uh, it, it sometimes causes a poor outcome, but it's very, very uncommon in young people. It's been very clear. We know these are the conditions that might put you at higher risk, but if you choose to get the vaccine, you have in the range of, you know, we don't know the numbers, but, but at least one in 5,000 from what we're seeing, a risk of heart inflammation. So the risk benefit conversation of course, I'm in favor of vaccination. I'm just saying I'm in favor of an individualized approach, which is first do no harm, ensuring that my patients have true informed consent. And then I always respect bodily autonomy. It's, I'm a physician. I have to adhere to medical ethics. Speaking of ethics, I'll turn to you on this, Professor Panessi, because you noted, I, I think quite ironically, that you were fired for ironically doing what uh, you had been hired to do, which was focus on ethics. You were a, an ethics professor at Huron, which is an affiliated college uh, of Western. Uh, you would not comply with the vaccine mandate. You've written a book about it. But when we talk about academia here, I, I mentioned in my remarks on Saturday this section from Western's commitment to academic freedom, which says it encourages students to engage in, in critical thinking. And this has always been at the crux of what academia is about. So why is it that this idea of medical ethics, of academic ethics, have now been trumped by this vaccine mandate, not just at Western. I think in this particular context with Western's booster mandate, it's egregious uh, beyond where other schools are, but in general. 
It's a good question. This is the question. I don't think, though, that that this mandate situation is trumping a broader culture of academic freedom. You were right when you quoted uh, Western's policy, but we have seen a slow, I would say, sort of stricture of freedom in the academic community for many years prior to this. And so when the, the, when the freedom policy says that students are free to, to be curious, to, to, to think what they think, to say what they think, freedom of expression, freedom of inquiry, that is in some sense a vestige from, from a former time. I think the culture on campus is much different. I actually spoke to a student at the rally on Saturday who said that the, her professor uh, said to the class, I know there are dirty, unvaxxed students here. I, and, and that, from what I've heard from other students, is not anomalous. It's more the rule than the exception to the rule. And that kind of ideology, that kind of thinking is factoring into not only classroom dynamics, but also questions that students are getting on their exams. Um, so I think that academic freedom, there's a question about how much of it there really is when it started to shift. And I don't think it's restricted just to the COVID issue, but, but this COVID vaccination issue has just punctuated what I think has been building slowly for a long time. Well, you know this full well, Bruce, as not only a lawyer, but also a, a member of a university faculty right now. There are a number of different fronts that we see this on. There is, of course, a human resources aspect. There's a privacy aspect. There's a constitutional aspect. And there's a, a moral aspect of this. To go back to what we've heard from all of the panelists today about, is this a right that belongs to the individual student? Or is this a right that belongs to a university or an employer or whatever the case is? So what do you think is the most likely front on which we could emerge victorious in this? Do you think it is going to be in law? Do you think it's going to be through the university just realizing the error of its ways? Where do you think that weak point is? Well, there are some legal avenues to pursue, and I trust that they will be and hope they will be successful. But I think even better than that is the possibility that the students themselves will take this into their own hands and say, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I mean, I, I, I love the name of Kendra's group, you know, students for agency and agency is the key word here. In, in a way, this might be a moment of truth for a, a lot of people in her peer group. Might be the moment to, to figure out, you know, have a, a moment to have a, a, a real education in the sense that reading books won't provide to you in the realization that the world does not always work the way it's portrayed and your elders might not actually have your best interests at heart and our institutions and our governments might not be the benign places and, and outfits that, that they're portrayed as. Um, there's an old saying that, that, that education is not the filling of a pail, but the, but the starting of a fire and maybe just maybe enough uh, students will be, in a corner now and realize the pressure they're, they're being put on them in the interests of other people, other people's fears. Because as, as Dr. Fulford alludes to, the, 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 the case for uh, on balance, the, these boosters being a net benefit to this age group is really not very good. And so if you're not given the opportunity to make your own cost-benefit analysis, that means you're being taken advantage of. And, you know, I hope that enough students will say, not me, I'm not doing that. 
I want to get to Dr. Fulford on that in a moment, but let me first get you on this, Kendra, because I know that the uh, Twitter chattering class, which is never, I think, what you want to extrapolate too much from, was kind of doing the frame-by-frame analysis of all the footage from the weekend and saying, well, that person looks like they're not a student and that person looks like it. And you had a lot of people there that were parents, faculty. So I I didn't take uh, having an an age demographic that wasn't just 20-somethings to mean anything significant here. But are you finding that there are actually students that are prepared to speak up about this because I, I know there was one gentleman who spoke who was a med student who didn't you want to use his last name understandably so and I spoke to some other students that as well didn't want to be identified on, on record and there is a lot of fear students that don't want to jeopardize their academic career by even criticizing this so what are you finding in the students you're talking to with you know classes set to start in just a little over a week it's been interesting to see we've had a lot of students come forward um, in private a lot of the parents we spoke to at the uh, at the rally came without their children and they told us my daughter's scared to be here or my son's going into his third year and he doesn't want to get another shot but he didn't want to come today and um, there's a lot of hesitation and who can blame them they're put in a position where um, the pressure is already mounting and when you are especially for the students coming out of high school the students who haven't maybe you haven't been vaccinated at all yet because it wasn't required, now have to get three, now have to wear a mask. And they're going to a school, maybe Western, maybe a smaller classroom dynamic, such as um, what, uh, Kings and Huron. And they want to make a good impression. They want to network and meet professors and ensure good job perspectives after school. And they want to fit in with their peers. So speaking up is, you know, is becoming a much more difficult option for a lot of students. So the fact that we have some momentum building between students um, is something we want to take advantage of and want to make sure students do not get silenced by the university. Dr. Fulford, you said something on the weekend that really stuck with me and in that you talked about how people have different priorities and and for some people it might be taking every preventative treatment available taking every vaccine available uh, really making sure they're the very portrait of health for other people religious values or uh, cultural values of some kind might be more important to them and and that's an idea that I think is very difficult for a lot of people that may not have that same identity to wrap their heads around And, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that because that really seems to be one of the real fault lines here is that people who are vaccinated themselves who support mandates don't understand or respect why someone wouldn't be vaccinated it seems and this is again i think it comes down to the issue of patient autonomy we've always respected somebody's decisions there are some people who Uh, For example, if they have a critical illness, we'll choose every conceivable medical intervention to prolong life at any cost. And that might involve very invasive surgeries. It might involve really toxic chemotherapies, even understanding that, that, you know, the the chances of of a good outcome are poor, but they still want that outcome no matter what. There are other people who might choose to say the quality of life is more important uh, and they refuse all treatment. Uh, we have, there are a great many people, for example, who refuse all blood products. And now maybe I, I personally don't share that, that belief because I don't, I'm a physician. On the other hand, I would never ever impose my, my thoughts on the pros and cons of a blood transfusion on somebody who is fundamentally uh, religiously opposed to that. And this, this idea of respecting um, the, the, the sort of the values and the, the beliefs of, of other people in our society, 
has always, at least up until now, been a fundamental part of, of the kind of medicine I was, brought, I was taught to practice. There's one thing I just want to backtrack a little bit on. One of the justifications for mandates, which clearly do trample on, on a lot of these, these principles I'm talking about, was that it would, that, that they would, that being vaccinated would also keep other people safe. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a really important thing to clarify. The individual benefit for the vaccination remains, um, and of course, that would be most seen in somebody who's at high risk in the first place. But this thought that the vaccines stop onward transmission is pretty obviously not happening. And the studies are very, very clear that the vaccines and even possibly a booster, maybe they reduce transmission for two to four months. Uh, if they do, it's not by very much. And so that that community value or that sort of public health value that somehow we were going to stop all transmission simply is not there. And so that is a rationale for imposing, uh, you know, a medical decision on somebody uh, with with very coercive means, because we are clearly coercing young young people. If we're saying do this thing you don't want to do or you cannot come to school to get an education is is that even that argument that maybe we have to sacrifice individual rights for, for, the, for the greater good is simply not true. And, and I think anybody looks around uh, at what's happened with Omicron, what's going on now, it's, it's very clear. So that in no way does, is, does this take away from the individual decision uh, to decide whether or not you want this, that, that my beliefs and, and my values say it's better to, to get a boost than not. But that's for me or for the individual making the decision. It's not for the benefit of anybody around you. And this is a really important clarification because I still hear a lot of people saying, oh, it's to keep everybody safe. Uh, and and it, it, it's not stopping transmission, which means that we really do need to return to exactly uh, you know, what you're saying in your question, which is respecting people's individual values and what's right for them. That, I think, is a, a tremendous point, and, and I'd like to get you, Julie, to continue along that vein, if you don't mind, because one thing that would also strike me, if you look at the list that Western has published of who this applies to and who it doesn't, is that Western knows it's not a public safety, which is why there are certain situations, like if you're a, an entire visiting athletic team, you don't need to be triple vaccinated, but if you are a parent going to your child's convocation, you do, and if you are, uh, as the text says, if you're a visiting donor or a visiting alumni, you don't need to be. But if you're a visiting donor who is enrolled as a student, you do. So if it's if everyone is a disease vector, you have to have a policy that applies to absolutely everyone. So do you think, Julie, that these sort of exemptions they put are, are indicative that they themselves don't believe in this idea that you being vaccinated is uh, to protect someone else? Well, it's very hard to see because on paper, on the screen, it's very hard to see the rationality of it, as, as you pointed out just now and on Saturday. Viruses don't distinguish on the basis of economics or on the basis of political participation or on the basis of ideology or on the basis of whether or not you're an athlete, you know, so it's very hard to understand. We certainly have been hearing a possibility that the Western Faculty Association has very much been pushing for this. Um, I, I also spoke with a member of senior administration on the weekend at another Ontario university, one that's close by, who said that there was some thought among senior administration at all the universities in Canada that, that they would move in lockstep with one another about these mandates that Western would announce first and that the others would follow. Western did announce early comparative, you know, relative to them, 
and uh, it has not gone well for them. So it's very hard to understand, you know, but I, I have to emphasize, um, you know, making this announcement at this point within two weeks of the start of class and ambushing students who have, and it's not that they can't say no at this point. And I certainly hope if they, if it is not their free choice to to get this booster dose, I certainly hope they they do say no and that they will um, incur the consequences of that and try to find alternative options. But what Western should have done, I mean, nothing scientific has changed since the spring. If anything, as, as Dr. Fulford has said, it's becoming less and less clear um, that there is any benefit to the vaccination for the population, especially for a young population like, like Western's population. So it's not like they've gained any new information that they didn't have a month ago or three months ago to suggest that the students are more at risk or that the faculty is more at risk than they might have yeah. been. Yeah. So this is something they should have publicized. And then the students would have had in March or June even an option to uh, apply to or enroll or transfer to another university in the province or, or out of out of province at a college. They could have had the option to enroll at Fanshawe. And I actually know a couple of students who are pursuing that option uh, or not or not uh, pursue their studies at all. Now they've paid some portion of their tuition and there's a financial penalty for withdrawing at this point. As, as Bruce was saying earlier, you know, what is the the goal of education is not to put ideas into the student's mind, but to sort of light a fire of curiosity so that they can pursue their own ideas. And I think, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of sync with that idea is that the mark of a truly free, successful education system is that the students feel free to disagree with their educators. And if you have created a context in which they do not have that freedom, if there isn't a, a culture or a spirit or an atmosphere of that kind of freedom, then that's a sign to us that we are failing massively as educators and in institutions. Yeah, no, that's very well said. And it was interesting, Bruce, last year when Western was one of the earlier ones to put in a vaccine mandate, they were very boastful when they had like a 99.9% vaccination rate. And they said, you know, we're so proud that we've gotten our campus up to, you know, basically 100% vaccination. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem all that impressive when you threaten to expel and fire anyone who's not vaccinated. I, I think it's like that. that's one of the easiest things to do. It's like Australia has mandatory voting. So yes, Australia will have a very high voting rate because there's a criminal penalty if you don't vote. So when students do go along with this because they are coerced, because they feel no other option, that is not a win. But the people that promote these mandates view it as a win, which is, I think, even worse, because they're enjoying the fact that they've been able to make someone who otherwise wouldn't have done this do this. You're putting your finger on what's actually going on, Andrew. Uh, you know, Every now and then I get there. Yeah, no, but the, 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 the occasional claim that this is about keeping other people safe, as Dr. Fulford alludes to, is, I mean, I don't think very many people would seriously make that claim now based upon the data. So it's really a paternalistic, patronizing idea that, you know, in some kind of abstract way, vaccines are good. And we have a population and we think you should do this. And therefore, we're going to make it mandatory. And it's, it's hardly a thing to, to gloat about that you have made your population do a certain thing and they've gone, a, gone along with it in, a, in an institution that is supposed to be promoting independent thinking to gloat that you've managed to get 99% of your student body to go along with it is no victory. That, that's, that's a very bad sign. You know, in some ways, 
for for many students, many young students, this may be, for some of them, the 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 first real crisis or the first real political crisis anyway uh in terms of dealing with external authorities who want to tell you what to do in a way that it's contrary to your own interests and it's very important for them to to recognize the moment and not just go along to be very careful to think it through act deliberately so that they don't do something they may regret for the rest of their lives both in health terms and in terms of being showing some integrity to themselves to be able to look in the mirror and say you know what i did think for myself i did act in my own best interests don't just put your head down and go with the crowd this is not the moment for that kendra you may you would know better than me and and those uh, the rest of us on the panel here but western it does not seem like from my perspective ha- has done all that much to try to be accommodating with online classes for example you know i was talking to a couple of people on the weekend who had said that the online offerings are are minimal especially compared to last year when it was a bit of a hybrid and two years ago when eventually it was all online so it's not even like this is something that they're approaching in good faith and making sure that students that aren't able to come to campus have options and, and quite the contrary because students who are online students still have to be vaccinated if their class has an in-person exam so to come in person for that three hours in April you need to be fully vaccinated in October so when you're looking around here students that are still holding out hope that this will change in the next week what are the options realistically that, that you have and I mean in your case you're in a master's program which I know is even narrower as far as options you have compared to undergrad students the options are slim and that's the that's the case um we heard from students last year who went to submit exemptions both the religious creed exemptions and the medical exemptions who got their exemptions denied there were plenty of students who had genuine medical exemptions who were denied and they, when they reached out to you know their own students council or the accessibility um, resource center through campus they were told it's okay you must just be you know, this must be just kind of like an outlier will help you. And then they're put to the side. And that didn't become the exception. That was the rule. So there is a contradiction in effort. And I'd say like the motivations behind things and the concern for students that doesn't really appear to be there. So yes, I'd say that I'd say most of the online classes are not going to be available for um, students who do not have the three doses. That was the case last year because of those in-person exams. Um, I don't think I could name five classes that would actually have an online exam um, personally. So the limit, mm-hmm. the options are limited and they, we can assume that's because they want you to be put into a corner. They don't want students to be able to make that choice for themselves, which is sad as, you know, as Bruce was saying that these students, especially coming out of high school are typically 18 and older. We can vote, we can choose the political trajectory of our country. We can't choose what we want to do with our own health. Wow. Have you heard from students that got the two doses last year because Western or another university made them, but this year they're saying, you know what, the the booster is a bridge too far. Students that went along but are not prepared to this time? Yes. I'd say that that was actually a a good portion of the students we heard from from the rally um, who, who got it, thought it was a sort of an admission fee for freedom. You know, we were going to resume normalcy. That was what we were told. We went through a year of online schooling and mental health issues and struggles and lack of resources and feeling completely isolated. 
we were told, okay, if you do two shots, you can come back to campus, things will only get better from here. And now that is not the case. That was the lie that we were sold and people are going to put their foot down and rightfully so. Yeah, and I think there is understandably a fear that people uh, could have that it's not going to be over. I mean, Dr. Fulford, you were mentioning about how there may only be a, a real tangible benefit on transmission for a few months. So uh, it could be very likely that Western in January is saying fourth dose or whatever the advice goes there. So when you hear about some of these concerns, whether it's from someone that has a, a religious objection or someone that perhaps has had a, a vaccine injury or knows someone who has had one. And it goes back to that individualized approach. But institutions have also been very reticent to honor exemptions. You've had doctors that have been very reticent to give exemptions. And I'm wondering if you could speak to how that issue has, has factored in here, not even just with Western, but in general with vaccine mandates, this uh, pol politicization of exemptions. I mean, it's something extraordinary for me to see, uh, I mean, to the point that our college, um, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons Ontario even sort of said that there'd be very, very few reasons for an exemption. Uh, you know, the, the under normal circumstances, the medical history of a patient of mine is confidential. Uh, in the past, if I, uh, before COVID, if I wrote a letter for somebody for medical reason, one of the actual um, you know, I don't say rule, but but we weren't supposed to talk about the actual details of a person's medical history. Hmm. So I would say this person is exempt, you know, please excuse this person for whatever, because the, the reason might have been, could be a mental health issue. It could be perhaps the person had in the past uh, HIV infection. It might be uh, for severe mental health struggles. I mean, we don't reveal a patient's medical history. This is very confidential between the physician and the patient. And now we're suddenly in a position where not only are we supposed to breach that, in, in a lot of cases, we're supposed to disregard our patient's sort of values and preferences. Uh, for some, we were supposed to disregard their history. Uh, there were actually, you know, some people saying, well, myocarditis is mild. They, they can just get another dose. You know, sure, some people re recover from myocarditis, but some don't. Some have permanent damage. We had people in our intensive care unit from from vaccine-induced myocarditis. Again, I'm not saying it was that common, but it was real, and it remains real. And so, the we need to, uh, for me, I mean, we need to go back to honoring that sort of physician-patient relationship, and 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 honoring that. I mean, I, I tried to write some letters, for example, for people who had just recovered from COVID. A person who's just had infection develops a very strong immune response to this. And it is, for me, immunologically, epidemiologically highly bizarre to say somebody who's just recovered from infection needs to be vaccinated. This is sort of unprecedented for me. Uh, prior to COVID, we always actually accepted proof of immunity. Uh, for, for most infections. And so a lot of this became strange. Like I, I, you know, HR would reject letters of exemption where I, I said, this person has documented proof of recovery. There is no reason this person be vaccinated for at least six months, and at least, which is actually as per Massey guidelines, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that they were still being rejected. So it's very unusual. Uh, and, and it made me, I, I personally felt extremely uncomfortable uh, in what was going on in terms of, of, again, and I'm going back to medical ethics, it, it, because we, when talking about these vaccines, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of understanding what they do do, 
who benefits, but also what they don't do. Uh, and, and that's this part about they don't stop a person from testing positive and they don't stop a person from transmitting. There may be some small decrease in, in transmission for the first few months, but, but that's what the studies unequivocally show. And the studies unequivocally show that men under the age of 40 are at a higher risk for myocarditis from the vaccines than they are from the infection themselves. And the, this information should be transparent, it should be open, and it should be part of the conversation when encouraging, or at least when discussing with a patient, whether or not that individual should, um, you know, basically risk and benefits to that individual. One of the interesting demographics I, I've heard more and more people fall into is those who know someone who's had a, a vaccine injury, and because of that knowledge, they're a bit reticent, which I totally understand. I, I mean, I have talked to people that had a very terrible reaction from a first dose or second dose. They can get a doctor to sign off on that and say, okay, you're exempt because of this reaction. But if you have a loved one that went through that, and you may say, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I want to go through that as well, that doesn't get you an exemption, even though I think you have a very real reason to be frustrated about this. And I, I'll go to you on this, Julie, because I think all of these different situations really show the complexity of this. There is, There was a, a woman I met on Saturday who's a, a member of a faculty. She was really enthusiastic, got her first dose and had a, a terrible reaction, had partial paralysis. Uh, you know, doctor recognized it, Western recognized it, but now Western wants to make her reapply for her exemption, and she's worried that because she's not as acute this time, it, it, she could have an issue, or that she just has to go through it again. And, and you know, you can point to lots of different people that have very good reasons for not wanting to, but I feel in, in a way, once you go down that road, you're, you're missing the mark to some extent, because the whole point is that it's not Western that should be the arbiter of this. Well, that, that's exactly right. And reasons come in all kinds of different forms and informed consent, which is, as, as Martha has been saying, it's so core, not just to medical practice, but to who we are as persons. And, and now we're at a place in our country where young people have to choose. You choose between your, your right to have an education and your right to bodily autonomy, your right not to have your your body invaded, and 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 making an informed choice. It's not about. It's not as though as a group we're going to figure out what the best medical choice is, and then we download that to each individual. And if you don't make that choice, then we then we consider you not to have the capacity to make an informed choice, right? So informed consent and capacity assessments are very complicated. And my concern now is that someone who chooses not to be vaccinated is considered not to have the capacity to make an informed choice to be in, to be vaccinated or not. I mean, I think we've been at that point in the country and I hope we're turning around, but I think I, I would hope to say, I hope people who are listening realize that one of the very best reasons why this should always be a matter of personal choice is because you, not your professor, not Western, not our prime minister will bear the consequences mm -hmm. if it goes badly for you. And for that reason, and almost no other reason, it should be up to you and your choice should be supported. You know, I did want to say I've had some really encouraging, e I mean, there's a question going forward, what, what do we do about all of this? And I've had some really encouraging emails from people in the Western community who are donors who said, 
after they saw the rally on Saturday, so Kendra, this is a testament to all your effort there, they are writing strong letters to the president's office, to VP external affairs, uh, and, and, and threatening to withdraw support if this mandate isn't rescinded. So I think we're at a really crucial moment. Western is in a terrible position. I would not want to be responsible for, you know, the, for, for Western's uh, public image right now. Uh, but that could, we're at a precipice, right? It could come or go depending on what students do in the next days and the next week or two and we have to do everything possible to support them there is kendra you might know this better than i but university students council is having a vote on the 31st i believe so two days from now about whether or not to challenge the university's mandate that would be huge i mean i think the more students can come together and say this is not really about the science anymore this is about the fact that we are independent autonomous people and we're paying tuition to to make ourselves more so and you're trying to counter that at every turn, and we're not going to take it anymore. Yeah, and I think on that note, too, I mean, you look at the number of students that are triple vaccinated already, and if you just extrapolate from the age data that's available, it's probably about a third. And that's a lot of people that need to decide to go along with what Western's doing without seeing a, a huge drop in enrollment for the upcoming term. And I'll be fascinated to see those numbers. I'll give you the last word on, on this, Kendra. I'll ask you, first off, are you optimistic uh, that this will change in the next week? And also, you said at the beginning that Western has clarified this donor thing. So I, I would love for you to explain what you've learned on that. Oh, gosh, the donor thing. That was, I think I was just tagged in it. There's so much information coming through where I didn't give too much of a look, but I think they've been very careful to not make it very public because if it was public, <laughs> I would have seen it. Um, we we do know that they're very, um, they're very slick sometimes in their messaging, but um, yeah, I would have to I'd have to look yeah. into that. For no, you. that's okay. Yeah, because just for if you hadn't seen the video, I, I found and other people pointed out as well that uh, Western says if you're visiting the campus because you're a donor, you're exempt from the vaccine requirement. But also if you're a prospective donor, so I like waved a five dollar bill in the air and said it's going to take me a whole year to think about whether I want to give this to them. But uh, in any case, the the real question: Are you optimistic at this point? Yes, hundred percent. We are optimistic um, because we are. We, we are Western, students are Western. Without us, they have nothing. We are, they're a publicly funded institution. They rely on us as paying customers. They rely on these alumni donors who are upset and they're in a terrible position, to be honest. And they went through this without any student consultation. And I think if they did the bare minimum student consultation, they would see the overwhelming direction this is going and would know that they're in the wrong. So I am optimistic because this is what's right. This is what is supported by the data. It's supported by the science. It's supported by public health and the people who pay to go there. So uh, I think we will win this. Well, keep up the fight for sure. Kendra Hancock of Students for Agency and a student at Western. Bruce Party, who is a Queen's Law Professor and Executive Director of Rights Probe. Dr. Martha Fulferta, a former infectious disease, well, current infectious disease specialist, but uh, formerly a uh, staff physician specifically dealing with children. And she's done tremendous work over the last two and a half years in that regard. Dr. Martha Fulford, and ethics scholar for the Democracy Fund, Dr. Julie Panessi. So we've got a lawyer, a doctor, a Western student, and an ethics all saying this is wrong. I think you have to listen to that, Western. Uh, but all of you, thank you so much for your efforts on this and for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you.
That does it for me. What a, an absolutely tremendous panel. My thanks to Bruce, Kendra, Martha, and Julie. It was uh, truly wonderful. And like I said, when you have a lawyer, a student, a doctor, an ethicist all saying this is wrong, uh, Western has to pay attention. We are going to wrap it up there. We will talk to you in a couple days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.